The Baker Street Readers present The Boscombe Valley Mystery From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. We were seated at breakfast one morning, my wife and I, when the maid brought in a telegram. It was from Sherlock Holmes and ran in this way. Have you a couple days to spare? I've just been wired for from the west of England in connection with the Boscombe Valley tragedy. Shall be glad if you will come with me. Air and scenery perfect. Leave Paddington by the 11.15. What do you say, dear? Said my wife, looking across at me. Will you go? I really don't know what to say. I have a fairly long list at present. Oh, Anstruther would do your work for you. You've been looking a bit pale lately. I think that change would do you good. And you are always so interested in Mr. Sherlock Holmes' cases. I should be ungrateful if I were not, seeing what I gained through one of them. But if I am to go, I must pack at once, for I have only half an hour. My experience of camp life in Afghanistan had at least had the effect of making me a prompt and ready traveler. My wants were few and simple, so that in less than the time stated, I was in a cab with my valise rattling away to Paddington Station. Sherlock Holmes was pacing up and down the platform, his tall, gaunt figure made even gaunter and taller by his long grey travelling cloak and close-fitting cloth cap. It is really very good of you to come, Watson. It makes a considerable difference to me, having someone with me on whom I can thoroughly rely. Local aid is always either worthless or else biased. If you will keep the two corner seats, I shall get the tickets. We had the carriage to ourselves, save for an immense litter of papers which Holmes had brought with him. Among these he rummaged and read, with intervals of note-taking and of meditation until we were past reading. Then he suddenly rolled them all into a gigantic ball and tossed them up onto the rack. Have you heard anything of the case? Not a word. I have not seen a paper for some days. The London press has not had very full accounts. I have just been looking through all the recent papers in order to master the particulars. It seems, from what I gather, to be one of those simple cases which are so extremely difficult. That sounds a little paradoxical. But profoundly true. Singularity is almost invariably a clue. The more featureless and commonplace a crime is, the more difficult it is to bring home. In this case, however, they have established a very serious case against the son of the murdered man. It is a murder, then? Well, it is conjectured to be so. I shall take nothing for granted until I have the opportunity of looking personally into it. I will explain the state of things to you, as far as I have been able to understand it, in a very few words. Boscombe Valley is a country district, not very far from Ross, in Herefordshire. The largest landed proprietor in that part is Mr. John Turner, who made his money in Australia and returned some years ago to the old country. One of the farms which he held, that of Hatherley, was let to Mr. Charles McCarthy, 
who was also an ex-Australian. The men had known each other in the colonies, so it was not unnatural that when they came to settle down, they should do so as near each other as possible. Turner was apparently the richer man, so McCarthy became his tenant, but still remained, it seems, upon terms of perfect equality, as they were frequently together. McCarthy had one son, a lad of eighteen, and Turner had an only daughter of the same age, but neither of them had wives living. They appear to have avoided the society of the neighboring English families and to have led retired lives, though both the McCarthys were fond of sport and were frequently seen at the race meetings of the neighborhood. McCarthy kept two servants, a man and a girl. Turner had a considerable household, some half-dozen at the least. That is as much as I have been able to gather about the families. Now for the facts. On June 3rd, that is, on Monday last, McCarthy left his house at Hatherley about three in the afternoon and walked down to the Boscombe Pool, which is a small lake formed by the spreading out of the stream which runs down the Boscombe Valley. He had been out with his serving man in the morning at Ross, and had told the man that he must hurry, as he had an appointment of importance to keep at three. From that appointment, he never came back alive. From Hatherley Farmhouse to the Boscombe Pool is about a quarter of a mile, and two people saw him as he passed over this ground. One was an old woman whose name is not mentioned. The other was William Crowder, a gamekeeper in the employ of Mr. Turner. Both these witnesses deposed that Mr. McCarthy was walking alone. The gamekeeper adds that within a few minutes of his seeing Mr. McCarthy pass, he had seen his son, Mr. James McCarthy, going the same way with a gun under his arm. To the best of his belief, the father was actually in sight at the time, and the son was following him. He thought no more of the matter until he heard in the evening of the tragedy that had occurred. The two McCarthys were seen after the time when William Crowder, the gamekeeper, lost sight of them. The Boscombe Pool is thickly wooded round, with just a fringe of grass and reeds round the edge. A girl of fourteen, Patience Moran, who is the daughter of the lodgekeeper of the Boscombe Valley estate, was in one of the woods picking flowers. She states that while she was there she saw, at the border of the wood and close by the lake, Mr. McCarthy and his son, and that they appeared to be having a violent quarrel. She heard Mr. McCarthy, the elder, using very strong language to his son, and she saw the latter raise up his hand as if to strike his father. She was so frightened by their violence that she ran away and told her mother when she reached home that she had left the two McCarthys quarreling near the Boscombe Pool and that she was afraid they were going to fight. She had hardly said the words when young Mr. McCarthy came running up to the lodge to say that he had found his father dead in the wood and to ask for the help of the lodgekeeper. He was much excited without either his gun or his hat, and his right hand and sleeve were observed to be stained with fresh blood. On following him they found the dead body stretched out upon the grass beside the pool. 
the head had been beaten in by repeated blows of some heavy and blunt weapon. The injuries were as such as might very well have been inflicted by the butt-end of the son's gun, which was found lying on the grass a few paces away from the body. Under these circumstances, the young man was instantly arrested, and a verdict of willful murder having been returned at the inquest on Tuesday, he was on Wednesday brought before the magistrates at Ross, who referred the case to the next assizes. Those are the main facts of the case as they came out before the coroner and the police court. I could hardly imagine a more damning case. If ever circumstantial evidence pointed to a criminal, it does so here. Circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing. It may seem to point very straight to one thing, but if you shift your own point of view a little, you may find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different. It must be confessed, however, that the case looks exceedingly grave against the young man, and it is very possible that he is indeed the culprit. There are several people in the neighbourhood, however, and among them Miss Turner, the daughter of the neighbouring landowner, who believe in his innocence, and who have retained Lestrade, whom you may recollect in connection with the study in Scarlet, to work out the case in his interest. Lestrade, being rather puzzled, has referred the case to me, and hence it is that two middle-aged gentlemen are flying westward at fifty miles an hour instead of quietly digesting their breakfasts at home. I am afraid that the facts are so obvious that you will find little credit to be gained out of the case. <laughs> there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Besides, we may chance to hit upon some other obvious facts, which may have been by no means obvious to Mr. Lestrade. You know me too well to think that I am boasting when I say that I shall either confirm or destroy his theory by means which he is quite incapable of employing, or even of understanding. To take the first example to hand, I very clearly perceive that in your bedroom the window is upon the right-hand side, and yet I question whether Mr. Lestrade would have noted even so self-evident a thing as that. How on earth did you— My dear fellow, I know you well. I know the military neatness which characterizes you. You shave every morning, and in this season you shave by the sunlight. But since your shaving is less and less complete as we get further back on the left side, until it becomes positively slovenly when you get it around the angle of the jaw, it is surely very clear that that side is less illuminated than the other. I would not imagine a man of your habits looking at himself in an equal light and being satisfied with such a result. I only quote this as a trivial example of observation and inference. Therein lies my metier, and it is possible that it may be of some service in the investigation which lies before us. There are one or two minor points which were brought out at the inquest and are worth considering. What are they? It appears that his arrest did not take place at once, but after the return to Hatherley Farm. On the inspector of the constabulary informing him that he was a prisoner, he remarked that he was not surprised to hear it, and that it was no more than his deserts. This observation of his had the natural effect of removing any traces of doubt which may have remained in the minds of the coroner's jury. It was a confession! 
I ejaculated. No, for it was followed by a protestation of innocence. Coming on the top of such a damning series of events, it was at least a most suspicious remark. On the contrary, it is the brightest rift which I can see at present in the clouds. However innocent he might be, he could not be such an absolute imbecile as to not see that the circumstances were very black against him. Had he appeared surprised at his own arrest, or feigned indignation at it, I should have looked upon it as highly suspicious, because such surprise or anger would not be natural under the circumstances, and yet it might appear to be the best policy to a scheming man. His frank acceptance of the situation marks him as either an innocent man, or else as a man of considerable self-restraint and firmness. As to his remark about his deserts, it also is not unnatural if you consider that he stood beside the dead body of his father, and that there is no doubt that he had that very day so far forgotten his filial duty as to bandy words with him, and even, according to the little girl whose evidence is so important, to raise his hand as if to strike him. The self-reproach and contrition which are displayed in his remark appear to me to be the signs of a healthy mind rather than of a guilty one. I shook my head. Many men have been hanged on far slighter evidence. So they have, and many men have been wrongfully hanged. What is the young man's own account of the matter? It is, I am afraid, not very encouraging to his supporters, Though there are one or two points which are suggestive, you will find it here and may read it for yourself. He picked out from his bundle a copy of the local Herefordshire paper, and having turned down the sheet, he pointed out the paragraph in which the unfortunate young man had given his own statement of what had occurred. I settled myself down in the corner of the carriage and read it very carefully. It ran in this way. Mr. James McCarthy, the only son of the deceased, was then called and gave evidence as follows. I had been away from home for three days at Bristol, and had only just returned upon the morning of last Monday, the third. My father was absent from home at the time of my arrival, and I was informed by the maid that he had driven over to Ross with John Cobb, the groom. Shortly after my return, I heard the wheels of his trap in the yard, and looking out of my window I saw him get out and walk rapidly out of the yard, though I was not aware in the, which direction he was going. Then I took my gun and I strolled out in the direction of the Boscombe Pool, with the intention of visiting the rabbit warren, which is upon the other side. On my way, I saw William Crowder, the gamekeeper, as he has stated in his evidence. But he is mistaken in thinking that I was following my father. I had no idea that he was in front of me. When about a hundred yards from the pool, I heard a cry of cooey, which was a usual signal between my father and myself. I then hurried forward and found him standing by the pool. He appeared to be much surprised at seeing me, and asked me, rather roughly, what I was doing there. A conversation ensued, which led to eye words and almost to blows, for my father was a man of very violent temper. Seeing that his passion was becoming ungovernable, I left him, and returned towards Adderley Farm. I had not gone more than a hundred and fifty yards, however, when I heard a hideous outcry behind me, which caused me to run back again. I found my father expiring upon the ground, with his head terribly injured. Dropped my gun and held him in my arms, but he almost instantly expired. I knelt beside him for some minutes, and then made my way to Mr. Turner's lodgekeeper, his house being the nearest, to ask for assistance. I saw no one near my father when I returned, and I have no idea how he came by his injuries, 
He was not a popular man, being somewhat cold and forbidden in his manners, but he had, as far as I know, no active enemies. I know nothing further of the matter. The coroner. Did your father make any statement to you before he died? Witness. He mumbled a few words, but I could only catch some allusion to a rat. What did you understand by that? It conveyed no meaning to me. I thought he was delirious. What was the point upon which you and your father had this final quarrel? I should prefer not to answer. I am afraid that I must press it. It is really impossible for me to tell you. I can assure you that it has nothing to do with the sad tragedy which followed. That is for the court to decide. I need not point out to you that your refusal to answer will prejudice your case considerably in any future proceedings which may arise. I must still refuse. I understand that the cry of Hui was a common signal between you and your father. It was. How was it then that he uttered it before he saw you and before he even knew that you had returned from Bristol? <laughs> I do not know. Did you see nothing which aroused your suspicions when you returned on hearing the cry and found your father fatally injured? Nothing definite. What do you mean? Well, I was so disturbed and excited as I rushed out into the open that I could think of nothing except my father. Yet I have a vague impression that as I ran forward, something lay upon the ground to the left of me. It seemed to me to be something grey in colour, a sort of coat, or a plaid perhaps. When I rose from my father, I looked around for it, but it was gone. You mean that it disappeared before you went for help? Yes, it was gone. You cannot say what it was? No, I had a feeling something was there. How far from the body? A dozen yards or so. And how far from the edge of the wood? About the same. Then if it was removed, it was while you were within a dozen yards of it. Yes, but with my back towards it. This concluded the examination of the witness. I see, said I as I glanced down the column, that the coroner in his concluding remarks was rather severe upon young McCarthy. He calls attention, and with reason, to the discrepancy about his father having signaled to him before seeing him, also to his refusal to give details of his conversation with his father, and his singular account of his father's dying words. They are all, as he remarks, very much against the sun. Holmes laughed softly to himself and stretched himself out upon the cushioned seat. Both you and the coroner have been at some pains to single out the very strongest points in the young man's favour. Don't you see that you alternately give him credit for having too much imagination and too little? Too little if he could not invent a cause of quarrel which would give him the sympathy of a jury? Too much if he evolved from his own inner consciousness anything so outre as the dying reference to a rat and the incident of the vanishing cloth. No, sir, I shall approach this case from the point of view that what this young man says is true, and we shall see whither that hypothesis will lead us. And now here is my pocket Petrarch, and not another word shall I say of this case until we are on the scene of action. We lunch at Swindon, and I see that we shall be there in twenty minutes. It was nearly four o'clock when we at last, after passing through the beautiful Stroud Valley and over the broad gleaming Severn, found ourselves at the pretty little country town of Ross. 
A lean, ferret-like man, furtive and sly-looking, was waiting for us upon the platform. In spite of the light brown dust coat and leather leggings which he wore in deference to the rustic surroundings, I had no difficulty in recognizing Lestrade of Scotland Yard. With him we drove to the Hereford Arms, where a room had already been engaged for us. I have ordered a carriage, said Lestrade, as we sat over a cup of tea. I knew your energetic nature, and that you would not be happy until you had been on the scene of the crime. It was very nice and complimentary of you. It is entirely a question of barometric pressure. Lestrade looked startled. I do not quite follow. How is the glass? Twenty-nine, I see. No wind, not a cloud in the sky. I have a case full of cigarettes here which need smoking, and the sofa is very much superior to the usual country hotel abomination. I do not think it is probable that I shall use the carriage tonight. Lestrade laughed indulgently. <laughs> oh, you have no doubt already formed your conclusions from the newspapers. The case is as plain as a pikestaff, and the more one goes into it, the plainer it becomes. Still, of course, one can't refuse a lady, and such a very positive one too. She has heard of you, and would have your opinion, though I repeatedly told her that there was nothing which you could do which I had not already done. Why, bless my soul, here is her carriage at the door. He had hardly spoken before there rushed into the room one of the most lovely young women that I have ever seen in my life. Her violet eyes shining, her lips parted, a pink flush upon her cheeks, all thought of her natural reserve, lost in her overpowering excitement and concern. Oh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, she cried, glancing from one to the other of us, and finally, with a woman's quick intuition fastening upon my companion. I am so glad you have come. I have driven down to tell you so. I know that James didn't do it. I know it. And I want you to start upon your work knowing it, too. Never let yourself doubt upon that point. We have known each other since we were little children, and I know his faults as no one else does. He is too tender-hearted to her to fly. Such a charge is absurd to anyone who really knows him. I hope we may clear him, Miss Turner. You may rely upon my doing all that I can. But you have read the evidence. You have formed some conclusion. Do you not see some loophole, some flaw? Do you not yourself think that he is innocent? I think that it is very probable. There now! She cried, throwing back her head and looking defiantly at Lestrade. You hear? He gives me hopes. Lestrade shrugged his shoulders. I am afraid that my colleague has been a little quick in forming his conclusions. But he is right. Oh, I know he is right. James never did it. And about his quarrel with his father, I'm sure the reason why he would not speak about it to the coroner was because I was concerned in it. In what way? It is no time for me to hide anything. James and his father had many disagreements about me. Mr. McCarthy was... Very anxious that there should be a marriage between us. James and I have always loved each other as brother and sister, but of course he is young and has seen very little of life yet, and, and well, naturally he did not wish to do anything like that yet. So there were quarrels, and this, I'm sure, was one of them. And your father, was he in favor of such a union? No, he was averse to it also. No one but Miss McCarthy was in favor of it. A quick blush passed over her fresh young face as Holmes shot one of his keen, questioning glances at her. Thank you for this information. May I see your father if I call tomorrow? I am afraid the doctor won't allow it. The doctor? Yes, have you not heard? Poor father has never been strong for years back, but 
This has broken him down completely. He has taken to his bed, and Dr. Willow says he is a wreck, and that his nervous system is shattered. Mr. McCarthy was the only man alive who had known Dad in the old days in Victoria. Huh. In Victoria? That is important. Yes. At the mines. Quite so. At the gold mines, where, as I understand, Mr. Turner made his money. Yes, certainly. Thank you, Miss Turner. You have been of material assistance to me. You will tell me if you have any news tomorrow. No doubt you will go to the prison to see James. Oh, if you do, Mr. Holmes, tell him that I know him to be innocent. I will, Miss Turner. I must go home now, for Dad is very ill, and he misses me so if I leave him. Goodbye. And God help you in your undertaking. She hurried from the room as impulsively as she had entered, and we heard the wheels of her carriage rattle off down the street. I am ashamed of you, Holmes, said Lestrade with dignity after a few minutes' silence. Why should you raise up hopes which you are bound to disappoint? I am not over tender of art, but I call it cruel. I think I see my way to clearing James McCarthy. Have you an order to see him in prison? Yes, but only for you and me. Then I shall reconsider my resolution about going out. We still have time to take the train to Hereford and see him tonight? Ample. Then let us do so. Uh, Watson, I fear that you will find it very slow, but I shall only be away a couple of hours. I walked down to the station with them, and then wandered through the streets of the little town, finally returning to the hotel, where I lay upon the sofa and tried to interest myself in a yellow-backed novel. The puny plot of the story was so thin, however, when compared to the deep mystery through which we were groping, that I found my attention wander so continually from the action to the fact that I at last flung it across the room and gave myself up entirely to a consideration of the events of the day. Supposing that this unhappy young man's story were absolutely true, then what hellish thing, what absolutely unforeseen and extraordinary calamity could have occurred between the time when he parted from his father and the moment when, drawn back by his screams, he rushed into the glade? Was something terrible and deadly? What could it be? Might not the nature of the injuries reveal something to my medical instincts? I rang the bell and called for the weekly county paper, which contained a verbatim account of the inquest. In the surgeon's deposition, it was stated that the posterior third of the left parietal bone and the left half of the occipital bone had been shattered by a heavy blow from a blunt weapon. I marked the spot upon my own head. Clearly, such a blow must have been struck from behind. That was to some extent in favor of the accused, as when seen quarreling, he was face to face with his father. Still, it did not go for very much, for the older man might have turned his back before the blow fell. Still, it might be worthwhile to call Holmes' attention to it. Then there was the peculiar dying reference to a rat. What could that mean? It could not be delirium. A man dying from a sudden blow does not commonly become delirious. No, it was more likely to be an attempt to explain how he met his fate. But what could it indicate? I cudgelled my brains to find some possible explanation, and then the incident of the grey cloth seen by young McCarthy. If that were true, the murderer must have dropped some part of his dress, presumably his overcoat, in his flight, and must have had the hardihood to return and to carry it away at the instant when the sun was kneeling with his back turned, not a dozen paces off. What a tissue of mysteries and improbabilities the whole thing was! I did not wonder at Lestrade's opinion, 
and yet I had so much faith in Sherlock Holmes' insight that I could not lose hope as long as every fresh fact seemed to strengthen his conviction of young McCarthy's innocence. It was late before Sherlock Holmes returned. He came back alone, for Lestrade was staying in lodgings in the town. The glass still keeps very high, he remarked as he sat down. It is of importance that it should not rain before we are able to go over the ground. On the other hand, a man should be at his very best and keenest for such nice work as that, and I do not wish to do it when fagged by a long journey. I have seen young McCarthy. And what did you learn from him? Nothing. Could he throw no light? None at all. I was inclined to think at one time that he knew who had done it and was screening him or her, but now I am convinced that he is as puzzled as everyone else. He is not a very quick-witted youth, though comely to look at, and I should think sound at heart. I cannot admire his taste. If it is indeed a fact that he was averse to a marriage with so charming a young lady as this Miss Turner. Ah, there hangs a rather painful tale. This fellow is madly, insanely in love with her. But some two years ago, when he was only a lad, and before he really knew her, for she had been away five years at a boarding school, what does the idiot do but get in the clutches of a barmaid in Bristol and marry her at a registry office? No one knows a word of the matter, but you can imagine how maddening it must be to him to be upbraided for not doing what he would give his very eyes to do but what he knows to be absolutely impossible. It was sheer frenzy of this sort which made him throw his hands up into the air when his father, at their last interview, was goading him on to propose to Miss Turner. On the other hand, he had no means of supporting himself, and his father, who was by all accounts a very hard man, would have thrown him over utterly had he known the truth. It was with his barmaid wife that he had spent the last three days in Bristol, and his father did not know where he was. Mark that point. It is of importance. Good has come out of evil, however, for the barmaid, finding from the papers that he is in serious trouble and likely to be hanged, has thrown him over utterly, and has written to him to say that she has a husband already in the Bermuda dockyard, and so there is really no tie between them. I think that bit of news has consoled young McCarthy for all that he has suffered. But if he is innocent, who has done it? Ah, who? I would call your attention very particularly to two. One is that the murdered man had an appointment with someone at the pool, and that someone could not have been his son, for his son was away, and he did not know when he would return. The second is that the murdered man was heard to cry coo-ee before he knew that his son had returned. Those are the critical points upon which the case depends. And now... Let us talk about George Meredith, if you please, and we shall leave all minor matters until tomorrow. There was no rain, as Holmes foretold, and the morning broke bright and cloudless. At nine o'clock, Lestrade called for us with the carriage, and we set off for Heatherley Farm and the Boscombe Pool. There is serious news this morning. It has been said that Mr. Turner of the All is so ill that his life is despaired of. An elderly man, I presume? About sixty. But his constitution has been shattered by his life abroad, and he has been in failing health for some time. 
This business has had a very bad effect on him. He was an old friend of McCarthy's and, I may add, a great benefactor to him, for I have learned that he gave him Atherley Farm rent-free. Indeed. That is interesting. Oh, yes. In a hundred other ways he has helped him. Everybody about here speaks of his kindness to him. Really? Does it not strike you as a little singular that this McCarthy, who appears to have had little of his own, and to be under such obligations to Turner, should still talk of marrying his son to Turner's daughter, who is presumably heiress to the estate, and that in such a very cocksure manner, as if it were merely a case of a proposal and all else would follow. It is the more strange, since we know that Turner himself was averse to the idea. The daughter told us as much. Do you not deduce something from that? We have got to the deductions in the inferences, said Lestrade, winking at me. I find it hard enough to tackle facts, Holmes, without flying away after theories and fancies. You are right. You do find it very hard to tackle the facts. Oh, anyway, I have grasped one fact which you seem to find it difficult to get hold of. And that is? That McCarthy Sr. met his death from McCarthy Jr., and that all theories to the contrary are the merest moonshine. <laughs> well, moonshine is a brighter thing than fog. But I am very much mistaken if this is not Hatherley Farm upon the left. Yes, that it is. It was a widespread, comfortable-looking building, two-storied, slate-roofed with great yellow blotches of lichen upon the grey walls. The drawn blinds and the smokeless chimneys, however, gave it a stricken look, as though the weight of this horror still lay heavy upon it. We called at the door, when the maid, at Holmes' request, showed us the boots which her master wore at the time of his death, and also a pair of the sons, though not the pair which he had then had. Having measured these very carefully from seven or eight different points, Holmes desired to be led to the courtyard from which we all followed the winding track which led to Boscombe Pool. Sherlock Holmes was transformed when he was hot upon such a scent as this, Men who had only known the quiet thinker and logician of Baker Street would have failed to recognize him. His face flushed and darkened, his brows were drawn into two hard black lines, while his eyes shone out from beneath them with a steely glitter. His face was bent downward, his shoulders bowed, his lips compressed, and the veins stood out like whipcord in his long sinewy neck. His nostrils seemed to dilate with a purely animal lust for the chase, and his mind was so absolutely concentrated upon the matter before him that a question or remark fell unheeded upon his ears, or, at the most, only provoked a quick, impatient snarl in reply. Swiftly and silently he made his way along the track which ran through the meadows, and so by way of the woods to the Boscombe Pool. It was damp, marshy ground, as is all that district, and there were marks of many feet, both upon the path and amid the short grass which bounded it on either side. Sometimes Holmes would hurry on, sometimes stop dead, and once he made quite a little detour into the meadow. Lestrade and I walked behind him, the detective indifferent and contemptuous, while I watched my friend with the interest which sprang from the conviction that every one of his actions was directed toward a definite end. The Boscombe Pool, which is a little reed-girt sheet of water some fifty yards across, is situated at the boundary between the Hatherley Farm and the private park of the wealthy Mr. Turner. Above the woods which lined it upon the farther side, we could see the red jutting pinnacles which marked the site of the rich landowner's dwelling, 
On the Hatherley side of the pool, the woods grew very thick, and there was a narrow belt of sodden grass twenty paces across between the edge of the trees and the reeds which lined the lake. The strad showed us the exact spot at which the body had been found, and indeed so moist was the ground that I could plainly see the traces which had been left by the fall of the stricken man. To Holmes, as I could see by his eager face and peering eyes, very many other things were to be read upon the trampled grass. He ran round like a dog who was picking up a scent, and then turned upon my companion. What did you go into the pool for? I fished about with a rake. I thought there might be some weapon or other trace. But I won't know. Oh, tut, tut, I have no time. That left foot of yours with its inward twist is all over the place. A mole could trace it, and there it vanishes among the reeds. Oh, how simple it would have all been if I had been here before they came like a herd of buffalo and wallowed all over it. Here is where the party with the lodge keeper came, and they have covered all tracks for six or eight feet round the body. But here are three separate tracks of the same feet. He drew out a lens and lay down upon his waterproof to have a better view, talking all the time rather to himself than to us. These are young McCarthy's feet. Twice he was walking, and once he ran swiftly, so that the soles are deeply marked and the heels hardly visible. That bears out his story. He ran when he saw his father on the ground. Then here are the father's feet as he paced up and down. What is this, then? It is the butt-end of the gun as the sun stood listening. And this? Ha-ha! What do we have here? Tiptoes, tiptoes, square, too, quite unusual boots. They come, they go, they come again. Of course, that was for the cloak. Now, where did they come from? He ran up and down, sometimes losing, sometimes finding the track, until we were well within the edge of the wood and under the shadow of a great beech, the largest tree in the neighborhood. Holmes traced his way to the farther side of this and lay down once more upon his face with a little cry of satisfaction. For a long time he remained there, turning over the leaves and dried sticks, gathering up what seemed to me to be dust into an envelope, and examining with his lens not only the ground, but even the bark of the tree as far as he could reach. A jagged stone was lying among the moss, and this also he carefully examined and retained. Then he followed a pathway through the wood until he came to the high road where all traces were lost. It has been a case of considerable interest, he remarked, returning to his natural manner. I fancy that this grey house on the right must be the lodge. I think that I will go in and have a word with Moran, and perhaps write a little note. Having done that, we may drive back to our luncheon. Uh, you may walk to the cab, and I shall be with you presently. It was about ten minutes before we regained our cab and drove back into Ross, Holmes still carrying with him the stone which he had picked up in the wood. This may interest you, Lestrade, he remarked, holding it out. The murder was done with it. I see no marks. Well, there are none. How do you know, then? The grass was growing under it. It could only have lain there for a few days. There was no sign of a place whence it could have been taken. It corresponds with the injuries. There is no sign of any other weapon. And the murderer? Is a tall man, left-handed, limps with his right leg, wears thick-soled shooting boots and a grey cloak, smokes Indian cigars, uses a cigar holder, and carries a blunt penknife in his pocket. There are several other indications, but these may be enough to aid us in our search. 
Lestrade laughed. <laughs> I'm afraid that I am still a skeptic. Theories are all very well, but we have to deal with the hard-headed British jury. Nouveau. You work your own method, and I shall work mine. I shall be busy this afternoon, and shall probably return to London by the evening train. And leave your case unfinished? No, finished. But the mystery? It is solved. Oh, who was the criminal, then? The gentleman I describe. Oh, but who is he? Oh, surely it would not be difficult to find out. This is not such a populous neighbourhood. Lestrade shrugged his shoulders. Oh, I am a practical man, and I really cannot undertake to go about the country looking for a left-handed gentleman with a game leg. Oh, I should become the laughing stock of Scotland Yard. All right. I have given you the chance. Here are your lodgings. Goodbye. I shall drop you a line before I leave. Having left Lestrade at his rooms, we drove to our hotel, where we found lunch upon the table. Holmes was silent and buried in thought, with a pained expression upon his face, as one who finds himself in a perplexing position. Look here, Watson, he said when the cloth was cleared. Just sit down in this chair and let me preach to you for a little. I don't quite know what to do, and I should value your advice. Light a cigar and let me expound. Pray do so. Well, now, in considering this case, there are two points about young McCarthy's narrative which struck us both instantly, although they impressed me in his favour and you against him. One was the fact that his father should, according to his account, cry cooey before seeing him. The other was his singular dying reference to a rat. He mumbled several words, you understand, but that was all that caught the son's ear. Now from this double point our research must commence, and we will begin it by presuming that what the lad says is absolutely true. Well, what of this cooey, then? Well, obviously it could not have been meant for the son. The son, as far as he knew, was in Bristol. It was mere chance that he was within earshot. The cooey was meant to attract the attention of whoever it was that he had an appointment with. But cooey is a distinctly Australian cry, and one which is used between Australians. There is a strong presumption that the person whom McCarthy expected to meet him at the Boscombe Pool was someone who had been in Australia. What of the rat, then? Sherlock Holmes took a folded paper from his pocket and flattened it out upon the table. This is a map of the colony of Victoria. I wired to Bristol for it last night. He put his hand over part of the map. What do you read? A rat, I read. And now? He raised his hand. Ballarat! Quite so. That was the word the man uttered, and of which his son only caught the last two syllables. He was trying to utter the name of his murderer, so-and-so of Ballarat. It is wonderful. It is obvious. And now, you see, I had narrowed the field down considerably. The possession of a grey garment was the third point which, granting the son's statement to be correct, was a certainty. We have come now, out of mere vagueness, to the definite conception of an Australian from Ballarat with a grey cloak. Certainly. And one who was at home in the district. 
for the pool can only be approached by the farm or by the estate, where strangers could hardly wander. Quite so. Then comes our expedition of today. By an examination of the ground, I gained the trifling details which I gave to that imbecile Lestrade as to the personality of the criminal. But how did you gain them? Oh, you know my method? It is founded upon the observation of trifles. His height, I know, that you might roughly judge from the length of his stride. His boots, too, might be told from their traces. Yes, they were peculiar boots. But his lameness? The impression of his right foot was always less distinct than his left. He put less weight upon it. Why? Because he limped. He was lame. But his left-handedness? You were yourself struck by the nature of the injury as recorded by the surgeon at the inquest. The blow was struck from immediately behind, and yet it was upon the left-hand side. Now, how can that be unless it were by a left-handed man? He had stood behind that tree during the interview between the father and son. He had even smoked there. I found the ash of a cigar, which, with my special knowledge of tobacco ashes, enables me to pronounce as an Indian cigar. I have, as you know, devoted some attention to this, and written a little monograph on the ashes of a hundred and forty varieties of pipe, cigar, and cigarette tobacco. Having found the ash, I then looked round and discovered the stump among the moss where he had tossed it. It was an Indian cigar, of the variety which are ruled in Rotterdam. And the cigar holder? I could see that the end had not been in his mouth. Therefore, he used a holder. The tip had been cut off, not bitten off, but the cut was not a clean one, so I deduced a blunt penknife. Holmes, you have drawn a net around this man from which he cannot escape, and you have saved an innocent human life as truly as if you had cut the cord which was hanging him. I see the direction in which all this points. The culprit is... Mr. John Turner, cried the hotel waiter, opening the door of our sitting room and ushering in a visitor. The man who entered was a strange and impressive figure. His slow, limping step and bowed shoulders gave the appearance of decrepitude, and yet his hard, deep-lined, craggy features and his enormous limbs showed that he was possessed of unusual strength of body and of character. His tangled beard, grizzled hair, and outstanding drooping eyebrows combined to give an air of dignity and power to his appearance. But his face was of an ashen white, while his lips and the corners of his nostrils were tinged with a shade of blue. It was clear to me at a glance that he was in the grip of some deadly and chronic disease. Pray sit down on the sofa. You had my note? Yes. The lodgekeeper brought it up. You said that you wished to see me here to avoid scandal. I thought people would talk if I went to the hall. And why did he wish to see me? He looked across at my companion with despair in his weary eyes, as though his question was already answered. Yes, said Holmes, answering the look rather than the words. It is so. I know all about MacArthur. The old man sank his face in his hands. God help me! But I would not have let the young man come to harm. I give you my word I would have spoken out if it went against him at the Assizes. I am very glad to hear you say so. I would have spoken now had it not been for my dear girl. It would break her heart. It would break her heart when she hears that I am arrested. It may not come to that. What? I am no official agent. I understand that it was your daughter who required my presence here, and I am acting in her interests. 
Young McCarthy must be got off, however. I'm a dying man. I've had diabetes for years. My doctor says it is a question whether I shall live a month. Yet I would rather die under my own roof than in a jail. Holmes rose and sat down at the table with his pen in his hand and a bundle of paper before him. Just tell us the truth. I shall jot down the facts. You will sign it and Watson here can witness it. Then I could produce your confession at the last extremity to save young McCarthy. I promise you that I shall not use it unless it is absolutely needed. It's as well. It's a question whether I shall live to the Assizes. Though it matters little to me, but I should wish to spare Ennis the shock. And now I will make the thing clear to you. It has been a long time in the acting, but it will not take me long to tell. You didn't know this dead man, McCarthy. He was a devil incarnate, I tell you that. God keep you out of the clutches of such a man as he. His grip has been upon me these twenty years, and he has blasted my life. I'll tell you first how I came to be in his power. It was in the early sixties at the diggings. I was a young chap then, up-blooded and reckless, ready to turn my hand at anything. I got among bad companions, took to drink, had no luck with my claim, took to the bush, and in a word, became what you would call over here, highway robber. There were six of us, and we had a wild, free life of it, picking up a station from time to time, or stopping the wagons on the road to the diggings. Black Jack of Ballarat was the name I went under, and our party is still remembered in the colony as a Ballarat gang. One day, a gold convoy came down from Ballarat to Melbourne, and we lay in wait for it and attacked it. There were six troopers and six of us, so it was a close thing, but we emptied four of their saddles at the first volley. Three of our boys were killed, however, before we got the swag. I put my pistol to the head of the wagon driver, who was this very man, McCarthy. I wished to the Lord that I'd shot him then, but I spared him, though I saw his wicked little eyes fixed on my face, as though to remember every feature. We got away with the gold, became wealthy men, and made our way over to England without being suspected. There I parted from my old pals and determined to settle down to a quiet and respectable life. I bought this estate, which chanced to be in the market, and set myself to do a little good with my money to make up for the way in which I'd earned it. I married, too, and though my wife died young, she left me my dear little Alice. Even when she was just a baby, a wee hand seemed to lead me down the right path as nothing else had ever done. In a word, I turned over a new leaf and did my best to make up for the past. All was going well when McCarthy laid his grip upon me. I'd gone up to town about an investment and I met him in Regent Street with hardly a coat to his back or a boot to his foot. Here we are, Jack, says he, touching me on the arm. We'll be as good as a family to you. There's two of us, me and my son, and you can have the keeping of us. If you don't, <laughs> it's a fine, law-abiding country as England, and there's always a policeman within hail. Well, down they came to the West Country. There was no shaking them off. And there they have lived rent-free on my best land ever since. There was no rest for me, no peace, no forgetfulness, 
turn where I would. There was his cunning, grinning face at my elbow. It grew worse as Alice grew up, for he soon saw I was more afraid of her knowing my past than of the police. Whatever he wanted, he must have, and whatever it was, I gave him without question. Land, money, houses, until at last he asked a thing which I could not give. He asked for Alice. His son, you see, had grown up, and so had my gal. And as I was known to be in weak health, it seemed a fine stroke to him that his lad should step into the whole property. But there I was firm. I would not have his cursed stock mixed with mine. Not that I had any like to the lad, but his blood was in him, and that was enough. I stood firm. McCarthy threatened. I braved him to do his worst. We were to meet at the pool midway between our houses to talk it over. When I went down there, I found him talking with his son. So I smoked the cigar and waited behind a tree until he should be alone. But as I listened to his talk, all that was black and bitter in me seemed to come uppermost. He was urging his son to marry my daughter with as little regard for what she might think as if she were a slut from off the streets. It drove me mad to think that I and all I held most dear should be in the power of such a man as this. Could I not snap the bond? I was already a dying and a desperate man. Though clear of mind and fairly strong of limb, I knew that my own fate was sealed, but my memory and my gal both could be saved if I could but silence that foul tongue. I did it, Mr Holmes. I would do it again. Deeply as I have sinned, I have led a life of martyrdom to atone for it, but that my girl should be entangled in the same meshes which held me was more than I could suffer. I struck him down with no more compunction than if he had been some foul and venomous beast. His cry brought back his son, but I had gained the cover of the wood, though I was forced to go back to fetch the cloak which I had dropped in my flight. That is the true story, gentlemen. Of all that occurred. Well, it is not for me to judge you, said Holmes, as the old man signed the statement which had been drawn out. I pray that we may never be exposed to such a temptation. I pray not, sir. And what do you intend to do? In view of your health, nothing. You are yourself aware that you will soon have to answer for your deed at a higher court than the Assizes. I will keep your confession and if McCarthy is condemned, I shall be forced to use it. If not, it shall never be seen by mortal eye, and your secret, whether you be alive or dead, shall be safe with us. Farewell, then. Your own deathbeds, when they come, will be the easier for the thought of the peace which you have given to mine. Tottering and shaking in all his giant frame, he stumbled slowly from the room. God help us, said Holmes, after a long silence. Why does fate play such tricks with poor, helpless worms? I never hear of such a case as this that I do not think of Baxter's words and say, There, but for the grace of God, goes Sherlock Holmes. James McCarthy was acquitted at the Assizes on the strength of a number of objections which had been drawn out by Holmes and submitted to the defending counsel. Old Turner lived for seven months after our interview, but he is now dead, 
and there is every prospect that the son and daughter may come to live happily together in ignorance of the black cloud which rests upon their past. The Boscombe Valley Mystery by Arthur Conan Doyle with James Gelter as Sherlock Holmes Tony Grobe as Dr. Watson featuring Dawn Grobe as Mary Watson Jonathan Kinnersley as James McCarthy Inspector Lestrade Hotel Waiter and Charles McCarthy Jeff Dolman as John Turner and Coroner and Jessica Gelter as Alice Turner Baker Street theme performed by Jonathan Kinnersley. Sound engineering by Jessica Gelter and Pete Wilson. Produced by James Gelter and Tony Grobe. Directed by James Gelter. Recorded at the Latches Theatre in Brattleboro, Vermont. And welcome to After the Read, Boscombe Valley Edition. I'm your co-host, Jay Gelter. And I'm your co-host, Tony Grobe. And joining us is our own Inspector Lestrade himself, Jonathan Kinnersley. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to be here. But first, before we get to anything, this episode is brought to you by a sponsor. Tony, take it away. Uh, Want to read the works of 14th century Italian poet on the go? Do you love reading love poems in the Tuscan dialect and epic poems in Latin, but hate carrying around heavy volumes? Get a Pocket Petrarch. Each Pocket Petrarch comes with all of the poet's most famous works, including Canzonier, Africa, and Secretum, all printed so small you'll need a magnifying lens to read them. Available at what few remaining physical bookstores still exist. Very nice. (laughs) Tony and I both had the great joy of having our wives join us in this reading. And every time I mentioned my pocket Petrarch, my wife let out a little giggle. (laughs) She didn't know what it was. (laughs) Is that a pocket Petrarch or are you happy to see me? Before we get into discussion, some business. First of all, thank you to all of our patrons for subscribing to the Baker Street Readers Podcast. Especially thank you to our detective tier patrons who right now are Anna Behrens, Don Grobe, Donna Harlow, Holly Kennedy, Ian Hefley, Mary Allen, Denise Glover, Kelsey, and Maureen Ward. If you want to shout out in an episode and receive a Baker Street Readers collectible mug, you can become a detective tier patron right now at patreon.com slash baker street readers other piece of business our first four episodes are now available on apple podcasts which is also just itunes stitcher and podcast addict now you're probably listening to this podcast via patreon but please please do us a favor if you if you love us go on to itunes or to stitcher look up the baker street readers podcast subscribe to it on there and then rate it and write us a review. It's the only way that those two platforms give any value to your podcast and share it with people is if it gets high number of uh, reviews and ratings. So please, please do that for us and we will love you forever. But enough of this business, let's get to it. We do have with us today our wonderful Inspector Lestrade, Jonathan Kinnersley. 
Lestrade is one of the very few characters other than Holmes and Watson who appears in multiple stories. Actually, he appears in more stories than any other character other than Holmes and Watson. Wonderful. Yes. A few little facts about Lestrade. He first appears in A Study in Scarlet, which is the very first Sherlock Holmes story. The one we read today, Boston Valley Mystery, is his second appearance, but he appears in 13 stories in total, which ain't bad. And a lot yes, of them happen. Let him go then. <laughs> yeah, and actually, he appears more frequently as time goes on. He makes a mm. couple appearances in the first collection, an appearance in the second one, and then he and then he starts appearing a bunch by the time you get to the third collection. But for a character who appears in 13 stories, we don't know a lot about him. <laughs> no. Um, we know that his first name begins with G, but we're never told what that first name is. <laughs> we know that in his very first story, Study in Scarlet, he has appeared on the force for 20 years by that point. Mm. And uh, we know that he has an ongoing rivalry with Inspector Gregson. <laughs> and that that's just about it that we factually that we know about Lestrade. Impressive. Yeah. But uh, Jonathan, in you've played Lestrade. You haven't just played Lestrade for us on the podcast. You did it for us uh, for a live show as well before we started the podcast. Yes, uh, what what is your relationship then to Mr. Lestrade, and what have you discovered about the character? Yeah. Um, well, I discovered just in this one that he was a a Weasley looking chap. Um, I think. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. A, which I hadn't really thought about before much. Um, a, I do him Cockney. I sort of assume that he's um, slightly educated, but not too educated. Um, he goes by the book. He has this um, sort of love-hate relationship, it seems to me, with um, Holmes. Like, he sort of admires him, but he unwittingly sort of acknowledges that Holmes, A, sought some cases. But he's a very much... Um, by the rule book kind of guy and doesn't like, you know, Holmes coming up with his deductions and inferences, as he says in this episode. Mm -hmm. um, he thinks it's all, you know, bah, not real. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes clearly solves the case a lot of the time, but he doesn't like, yeah. like there's something about it he doesn't like. <laughs> yeah, over the course of all the stories, Watson describes him as three different animals. Sometimes he describes him as a rat. Sometimes Watson describes him as a ferret. And sometimes he describes him as a bulldog. Oh, really? So not just totally brilliant. Yes. Um, interesting. But, but all uh, kind of uh, unfortunate looking furry animals is what he, <laughs> he, likes to, he likes to go with. But fierce, I suppose. Yes. Mm, um, yeah. Although, you know, it the the rivalry between him and Holmes, I I think you're right in the instinct that he's probably not that educated. You you, you certainly don't see Lestrade as somebody who went to, you know, Eton or something like, you know, and we know that Holmes did go to a good school and that, you know, obviously uh, Watson went to a medical school. But yeah, uh, mm -hmm. Lestrade does not come across as a college educated man like like the two of them. But he must be good at his... Thing because he keeps getting put on these difficult cases, right? That right comes in to solve. So right, yeah. I mean, uh, and Holmes, in a few different stories, points out that Lestrade is the best 
at Scotland Yard. That doesn't mean he's nearly <laughs> as good as Holmes, but he does say that he is the best of the professionals. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and really, they're kind of their relationship over time changes. Of course, uh, you know, we've just been having you read stories that are early Lestrade, where Lestrade is more often than not just frustrated with Holmes and doesn't doesn't get Holmes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? um, but that slowly changes both how Holmes and Lestrade talk to each other. Like in, in this story in particular, they're both th throwing insults at each other yeah. and kind of unhappy with each other. But by how do the Baskervilles, Holmes is calling Lestrade the best of the professionals, saying he's tenacious as a bulldog. And then by the story, The Six Napoleons, Lestrade gets one of the few moments that he in the entire canon where somebody gets Holmes to like get choked up emotionally by something. <laughs> I have the quote actually right here. He tells uh, Holmes, we're not jealous of you at Scotland Yard. No, sir, we are very proud of you. And if you come down tomorrow, there is not a man from the oldest inspector to the youngest constable who would not be glad to shake your hand. Hmm. That is not the Lestrade in the story we just read. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it does go it does go to uh, Conan Doyle's credit that even though these stories are episodic in nature, he does allow the relationships to grow and expand somewhat. I mean, there aren't that many characters who appear over and over again, but what few there are, like Lestrade, there's, mm. there's growth there. There's development there as it were yeah. yeah but now that we have all three of us here our homes watson and lestrade i figured this would be a perfect time to talk about the elephant in the room that is the history of sherlock holmes and that is dupin who um you know a lot of people say oh sherlock holmes was the first you know conan doyle created the the mystery genre with sherlock holmes and that's not true <laughs> Um, the first mystery story was written by Edgar Allan Poe in 1841, and it featured wow. the detective Dupin. Mm -hmm. He wrote three Dupin stories, The Murders at the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Marie Roget, and The Purloined Letter. And Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade, you could say are inspired by, or you could say are blatantly ripped off by the three main characters that appear in those three stories. Um, who are uh, Dupin, the detective, um, his friend, the narrator, who Poe never names, because Poe's weird like that, but he basically is Watson. He's the detective's friend who follows him around, doesn't help him solve anything, but simply documents everything that he does. And then there's Inspector G, whose full name is never get, given. And a lot of people say might be why Conan yeah. Doyle named, made him G. Lestrade. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Now. And perhaps why Lestrade has a French name in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Intriguing. Obviously, Conan Doyle was well aware of the Dupont stories because he directly references them in two of his own stories including his first one, A Study in Scarlet. But I thought we would do a little experiment just to show how closely related these stories that were written 40 years before the Sherlock Holmes stories are. I have taken a passage from the third Dupont story, The Purloined Letter, and I have changed the names of the characters to be 
Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade. And I thought the three of us could read through this little passage in character of Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade just to show how similar they are. All right. So uh, if you gentlemen are willing, of course. No French accents, right? No French. No, no. You do your you do your Cockney Lestrade voice. You're playing Lestrade in this one. All right. You guys right. ready? Yeah, Tony, take us away. All right. The door of her apartment was thrown open and admitted our old acquaintance Lestrade, inspector of the London police. We gave him a hearty welcome, for there was nearly half as much of the entertaining as of the contemptible about the man, and we had not seen him for several years. We had been sitting in the dark, and Holmes now arose for the purpose of lighting a lamp, but sat down again without doing so, upon Lestrade saying that he had called to consult us, or rather to ask the opinion of my friend, about some official business which had occasioned a great deal of trouble. If it is any point requiring reflection, observed Holmes, as he forbore to enkindle the wick, we shall examine it to better purpose in the dark. That is another of your odd notions, said Lestrade, who had a fashion of calling everything odd that was beyond his comprehension, and thus lived amid an absolute legion of oddities. Very true, said Holmes, as he supplied his visitor with a pipe and rolled towards him a comfortable chair. And what is the difficulty now? I asked. Nothing more in the assassination way, I hope. Oh, no, nothing of that nature. The fact is, the business is very simple indeed, and I make no doubt that we can manage it sufficiently well ourselves. But then I thought Mr. Holmes would like to hear the details of it, because it is so excessively odd. Simple and odd? Why, yes, and not exactly that either. The fact is, we have all been a good deal puzzled because the affair is so simple, and yet baffles us altogether. Perhaps it is the very simplicity of the thing which puts you at fault. <laughs> oh, what nonsense you do talk. Perhaps the mystery is a little too plain. Oh, good heavens, who ever heard of such an idea? A little too self-evident? <laughs> oh, Holmes, you will be the death of me. And what, after all, is the matter at hand? Why? I will tell you, replied Lestrade. See, <laughs> yeah. there could yeah. there could easily be a passage from Sherlock Holmes. The whole the whole dynamics are there. Lestrade is an entertaining imbecile. He doesn't <laughs> get he doesn't get Holmes, and uh, mm -hmm. and Watson is the impartial narrator between yeah. the two of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, so if our listeners are interested in uh, in Dupin, I encourage you to read them. Uh, you will find sometimes in doing these stories, some people have gone, wow, Holmes really talks a lot when he sums up these cases. Holmes is nothing compared to Dupin. Boy, does <laughs> that guy like to explain his deductions. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy, listener. Enjoy. All right. Let's... Uh, get to the the actual story that we were discussing today which is the Boscombe Valley mystery. Mm. Tony, start us off with the stats. Okay. Well, it was first published in the Strand magazine in October of 1891. It's the fourth short story in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and the sixth Sherlock Holmes story overall. Indeed. And the fact that it comes so early in the canon is important. We'll we'll we'll, we'll get 
we'll get to that. But first point of discussion, this is the second of three appearances of Miss of the first Mrs. Watson, Mary. Mm-hmm. For the uh, lovely ingenue of the sign of the four. Yes, for listeners who are not fully immersed in the Holmes canon, Watson is married twice. Some people say maybe three times, depending on how you read the timeline. His first wife he meets in the second novel, and then she's dead by the third collection, The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. He lives with Holmes, but then he gets married, and he moves in with his wife. The first two collections jump back and forth in time between when he was the first time he was living with Holmes and when he was living with his first wife. Then in the third collection, he's just living with Holmes again. And then, by, and then after that, um, he's living with some other wife who is never named. <laughs> but although he is married to, married to Mary for quite a while, uh, she only gets to speak in three stories. The Sign of the Four, The Boscombe Valley Mystery, and The Man with the Twisted Lip. And in the last two, all she does is go, yeah, honey, go Go do yeah. your go have fun with your friend. <laughs> Don't you think you'd have a good time with Holmes? He just wrote, "Go ahead, it's fine." Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah it's it's just like when your wife's like, "No, no, if if you want to go, if you want to go see a movie with your friends, that's fine. Just go do yeah. that. It's fine." <laughs> but uh, this, I, I I said before, it this being an early story is important because this is the first Holmes country adventure. Uh. which is a different format to a short story that Conan Doyle comes up with. But boy, does he come up with the format in this one and does he stick to it in the future? (laughs) (laughs) True. Yep. There's there's the consultation on the train ride, which makes constant appearances. Mm -hmm. Uh. Well, there's there's the Holmes, Holmes under Watson gets a message saying, come out to this place for this mystery. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of discussion, usually on a train, in which they read the newspaper articles and get themselves caught up on it. <laughs> uh, Holmes runs around outdoors, following some trail, sniffing things out, and then he usually solves it and says, "I'm going back to London." And people are like, "But you haven't solved it yet." He's like, "No, I have already solved it." Yeah, it's like, <laughs> dude, I, I'm done. You're I fine. think, yeah, that those four events happen in story after story after story. <laughs> And this one also starts the tradition. We've talked about it a few times, Tony and I. We've mm-hmm. talked about it on this podcast. The tradition of Conan Doyle ending a story by having an old man confess that as a young man, he went to another country, committed crimes, and came back to England <laughs> and had those crimes haunt him later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a cautionary tale, folks. It really is. Apparently, um, you know, if you're going to go away and commit crimes, just stay there. Yes. <laughs> like Jonathan, you yourself joined us for the the glorious Scott a little while ago. Yeah. Which, and again, we had you play the creepy guy who appears in the old man's story. I, about that. I thought you were going to bring up how I came from Scotland <laughs> twenty four years ago. <laughs> real life imitating stories but it's no, true I, I don't have any dark sh- a secrets in my past so. well that's ex- that's exactly what john turner would have said <laughs> <laughs> of course uh yeah but really this john turner in this one 
I don't agree with Hum's position at the end of this story. <laughs> no. He goes, a he really goes out of his way to protect this guy who has admitted to being a murderer <laughs> yeah. and who then covered that up by murdering another person. Yeah. Uh huh. I killed a yeah. bunch of people when I was a young man. Somebody came back to me as an old man and said, hey, I know you murdered those people as a young man. So what did I do? I murdered I, that guy. Uh -huh. <laughs> and but Holmes but is, not, not for his money. Right. The other ones he killed for money. This is different. Yeah, this is just to cover right. his own hide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, Holmes, to, and to protect his daughter. Protect Alice. Yeah. Right. That makes all the difference, apparently. Yes. I think it's Alice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the reason why Holmes. Yeah. Which kind of goes to Vic Victorian values. As a lot of days we talk about the American, you know, family and the importance of family and society. Victorians were like family and the honor of family was the main driving force in a lot of what they did. Mm -hmm. And you see that a lot in mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes stories. A lot of uh, criminals in these stories do what they do in order to protect their family or to shield their family from a secret. And Holmes usually, if he is swayed to help out somebody who committed a crime, it is for a reason like, oh, to, sh to save your daughter from the the shock of the fact that you're a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be dead soon anyway, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. But then again, what makes this ending all the more problematic is after Holmes lets this guy off the hook by saying, Watson and I will never tell a soul about the story. <laughs> Watson writes the whole thing down. Uh -huh. <laughs> as it's published in a magazine. <laughs> yeah. And there isn't even any like, oh, names were changed to protect the innocent disclaimer or any of that. It's just like, here you go. Here's here's what happened. Yep. <laughs> so I I I don't I don't know what Conan Doyle was thinking on that one, but <laughs> I was gonna say, while this one uh while this one creates the format of the country mystery as opposed to the city mystery, I wouldn't say it's the best of the country mysteries. Yeah. For those reasons, I, I'd say the mystery itself, how the murder was committed and how Holmes figures out what went down, it's, it's a pretty well constructed in, in, that, in that regard. You know, I think Conan Doyle does a really good job of, of doing this, building a case that does seem to very much condemn uh, young McCarthy and then Holmes figuring out, well, if you look at this aspect of it and this aspect of it, that's, you know, it... it I think it is well-crafted in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think it's nice that Holmes doesn't explain it all at once. It's kind of, in this one, it's kind of broken up into chunks. Holmes explains his thinking here, then he gets some more information, explains his thinking, gets some more information, explains his thinking, which is different than a lot of the ones that happen at Baker Street, where he's like, I'm just going to wait to give you all of my thoughts at the end. Right. Yeah, I'm going to hold the explanation until all the facts are here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which, yeah, which also just goes, the country ones, some of the city ones, but the country ones, one of the things I like is a lot of them jump into the action right away. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, usually the, the city stories, it starts with Holmes and Watson sitting at Baker Street, and they play some sort of deduction game that really has nothing to do with the overall mystery. It's just a few pages of Holmes being clever. and the, And then the actual mystery doesn't show up until you know like five or you know five or six pages in but this 
it just starts with Holmes is saying, meet me on the train, let's go. And by mm-hmm. page two, you're into the mystery, you know? Yep. And you're constantly, you know, the country ones, you're constantly moving from place to place. Stuff is happening. Watson is generally always there and a part of it. He's not being told what happened afterwards as much. Mm-hmm. They they make a more brisk and exciting read, I think. Yeah, I agree. But, but <laughs> that does lead me to, I wanted to discuss Watson's unusual uselessness in this yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> And what's unusual about it is Watson is usually overall kind of useless, right? (laughs) He's just along for the ride. But this one does the thing where it's unusual because it gives you a few instances where it looks like, oh, no, he is going to have Watson be useful in this one. (laughs) Oh, no, he's not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He says, Watson, I need you to come along. I need someone who I can rely on. As soon as they get to the to the town they're headed towards, he immediately abandons Watson at the hotel and goes off to do his other things. So it's like, all right, so I need you here immediately, but sit and read a book. Yeah. <laughs> Watson makes a deduction of his own about the wound. The fact that he's a doctor finally plays into something. Yeah. To, that you don't see his discussion with Holmes where he reveals this to Holmes. No, or or even, you know, it's never plain whether he actually tells Holmes what he's figured out at all. Well, Holmes does say, as you remarked, Watson. So there, there was a conversation between them at some point. Right. But then not only does Watson, like, make this minor, Watson does make a minor deduction, but then Holmes is like, yeah, but you didn't make the entire deduction. Yeah. You noticed that he was hit on the back of the head. You didn't notice that he was hit on the back of the head by a left-handed person. (laughs) Which also is a deduction that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because I, as a right-handed person, could easily hit somebody on the left hand left on the left side of their head if I just go across. I just strike across. The Mm -hmm. audience the audience can't see me, but I'm furious striking across (laughs) at somebody's head. Backhand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's Yeah, yeah. It's a bit less of natural of emotion, I, I suppose, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Right. And then the other thing is uh, Holmes, near the end, says, Watson, I want your advice. Here's the th- and then Watson is never given the opportunity to share his advice. Because <laughs> <laughs> John Turner walks in and interrupts it. Yep. <laughs> right in the middle. Yeah. 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 And of course, this story does include another Conan Doyle brag. And we course. talked, Tony, you and I talked about one in the last episode. Um, this this Conan Doyle brag is uh, when he's, Watson is describing the yellow-backed novel he's reading. Oh, man. At yeah. the hotel and says, The puny plot of the story was so thin, however, when compared to the deep mystery through which we were groping. Conan Doyle's just like, look at me, I come up with clever stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even even the people in my stories who read other things are unimpressed by those things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we check us the last episode we did, Holmes doing the like, oh, n- no author can come up with anything as interesting as the thing that I'm saying right now as a written character who is written by this author. Mm-hmm. Oh, love them Conan Doyle humble brags. Mm-hmm. I guess that is all we have to talk about this time. 
But if folks, if you have a question for us and would like us to uh, answer those questions on the podcast, you can post those questions on our Facebook page. You can tweet at us at B Street Readers, or you can email us at BakerStreetReaders at gmail.com. We love to get questions and comments and are always happy to respond. Indeed. Helps fill out the show. Indeed. As always, Tony, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome, Jay. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Um, You're totally welcome. My pleasure to be there. And we will see you again, listeners, or you will hear us again. There won't be any scene. (laughs) (laughs) But listeners, please join us again next week when our case will be the case of the resident patient. Ooh.